you know the saying, if you can't beat them, join them. But when envy shows up, this insidious envy, uh, it, it switches from if you can't beat them, join them, to if you can't beat them, just vandalize their house or do something just to just to spoil their fun, right? Maybe you've seen this with kids, you know, making a Lego set and the other kid can't build that well, so he just breaks the other person's set or gingerbread houses. Smash, right? Well, I want us to think about envy from the kingdom of darkness standpoint because the, the believers in Jesus, the faithful Jesus people in our story in the book of Acts were growing in courage and boldness and many were being shaped by the identity of Jesus and the message of Jesus and the implications for the world. And that's another way to say they were responding to the gospel, the announcement that changed the world. Uh, well, did it change the world, you might ask, is there really peace on earth like we had hoped for? Well, actually, I want to look to that next week. Uh, but here we find the church, church facing its human enemies backed by the kingdom of darkness. Uh, an envious kingdom of darkness. Do you think that's too bold a claim that humans' decisions can be backed by evil? Do, do you reject the idea of a destructive force attempting to thwart God's rule and reign among his people? Well, I want to show you that evil is lurking everywhere to attempt to spoil God's work in you and among us, as well as his work in the world. Uh, and today we're going to look at a few examples from scripture that show this chaotic force underlying human decisions. But but even a quick glance at the 20th century, called the, the bloodiest century, would show us that the destruction was caused not just by human decisions, but it was supercharged by the evil behind them. You know, right, we had numerous world leaders, right, who whose decisions shaped our world through extermination of humans made in the image of God. We have a century of of this on display. God's image bearers then destroyed, exterminated. You don't think there was evil lurking behind that? You see, if, if Satan cannot take God's throne, and he certainly cannot, these are not equal and opposite forces, but, but if Satan cannot take God's throne, he will attempt to ruin those who are destined to sit next to the throne. Okay, think, think about that. He can't take the throne, but he can try to spoil and, and ruin those destined to sit next to the throne. Who's, who's supposed to sit next to the throne of God? Well, the sons of God, the, the God's family. Uh, and he wants his human sons and daughters to, to be along the throne with him. It's an odd statement, human sons of God, right? Maybe so, but it's, but it's intentional. And, and let, let me just explain. There, there are divine beings pictured in the scriptures who were around the throne as sons of God. The Ben Elim, the, the sons of Elohim. And it's a genderless designation because these are divine beings, that, you know, like sons and daughters. But sons of God is just a royal term. But God wanted a human family as well to sit in council with him, to walk and talk with him, to be his people. And he, well, we know this. He, page two of the Bible, he met with them in the Garden of Eden. This is Adam and Eve, the first man and woman. So... The attempt to have a human family 
made at least one of these divine beings envious, one of these sons of God. And, and so the attempt to spoil God's plans for a human family begins on page three. So if Satan can't take God's throne, and, and no, the kingdom of darkness cannot overtake the kingdom of light, he, he will attempt to ruin those destined to sit next to the throne, the human sons of God. And, and sons includes you ladies as well, and elevates you at the same time, because royal heirs. So Satan cannot defeat God. I, I, have I said that enough? The only way to get at him for Satan to get at God is to mess with his creation. And I want you to think about this, this battle going on, this God's good intentions and Satan's desire to spoil those intentions with you, with me, and with the world. Today we're going to look at two ancient kings and about 330 million modern-day American kings and see what kind of struggle we are in with the kingdom of darkness. We're going to look at Acts chapter 12 as well as Matthew chapter 2. So Acts 12, 1 through 5, it says that about that time Herod laid violent hands. Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. And he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Now, James and John and Peter were all Jews, right? He's talking about the Jewish leaders. And, and here's just a, a big idea to wrap your head around here. When public opinion drives violence against the innocent, evil is at work. Let me say that again. When public opinion drives violence against the innocent, evil is at work. It's lurking behind that. Whether that's violence against innocent unborn humans or violence against the poor immigrant, evil is at work. Whether that's violence against an unwanted ethnic group or marginalized religious people, evil is at work. And of course, I'm not saying that borders have no place, or that military aggression uh, should be met with a suicidal policy where a nation allows its citizens to be overrun or destroyed by outside forces. Uh, government is there to protect the people. But when public opinion, the mob, the state, when, when public opinion drives violence against the innocent, evil is at work. This Herod, which is a family name, started to round up the faithful and executed James, son of Zebedee, John's brother, with the sword. Now, Tom Wright says to kill someone with the sword, as opposed to having them stoned as Stephen had been, strongly indicates that Herod either saw or wanted people to think that he saw the Christian movement as a political threat. Certainly a movement whose very name, he says, by this stage stakes out a claim for Jesus as the true anointed king of the Jews. And it cannot have been anything other than threatening to the person who bore that title as the gift of the Roman superpower. So you've got the Herod who's been given this gift, and if he sees this political upstart Jewish group that's claiming Jesus is king, then, then that would be a political threat. And the execution then, of course, it says pleased the Jewish leaders who were seeking 
to maintain some control of, of just their slice of authority over the Jewish people. They, they had the scrolls, right? The, the scriptures and the teachings. And Herod had the sword. Wow, what a, what a combination. The religious leaders were in a fateful dance with the political powers. The scroll and the sword got together to protect their mutual interests. It's a dangerous situation. So this Herod family, uh, the Herodians, had a history of siding with darkness. They were what I would call Jew-ish, right? Just sort of, sort of Jew. They had they had a familiarity with the Jewish way of life, but not so much that you'd notice as it played out in everyday life. They were Jew-ish, and after several civil wars between the Jewish leadership groups, the Pharisees and Sadducees especially. Um, these civil wars had, had caused all this upheaval. Rome had looked for a warlord familiar with the territory and found Herod the Great to be a fit. Uh, he was an outsider who married into one side of the civil war, the priestly class of the day. And when he reigned 39 BC to 1 BC, and those dates are in question, but recent evidence puts his death a little later than shown on, on this chart that I'll show you here. And his, his family saga is like a dumpster fire of murder, betrayal, seduction, adultery, intrigue. He had lots of wives. Uh, he, he won, he dispatched along with their sons, uh, you know, whenever, whenever necessary. And it's not hard to see evil lurking in the family archives. This Herod the king that killed James is actually Herod Agrippa I, who was the grandson of Herod the Great. So he was Marcus Julius Agrippa, and he found his way into power, um, kicking out Herod Antipas, because while he was living in Rome, he had become friends with a notoriously evil emperor, uh, Caligula. And when Caligula was assassinated, uh, Marcus Julius Agrippa supported Claudius to become Caesar, and then Agrippa was granted the rule of all Judea. So this is the Herod family. This is, this is where, where Agrippa I fits in. And let's go back to that text and just kind of read in now that we know that. It says, it says about that time, Herod... Julius Agrippa, you know, the king, laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And, of course, the implication is here that he respected the feast enough to wait to murder Peter. And when he had seized Peter, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now we have just a dark scene, right? The church is praying for Peter, but, but James gets killed, executed by the sword. And, and in, in January, we're going to pick up this amazing story with Peter. But I want to I lean us into and toward Christmas right now. Uh, this, this awful and simple passage reveals the evil lurking among those who hold power, seeking to devour, crouching at the door, looking for an opportunity to corrupt God's plans. 
wherever the halls of power meet in those dark smoke-filled rooms evil is lurking there as well but know this the creator god is more than a few steps ahead right he's the creator of all this he can use each of their plots to bring about his plans we see this over and over and over in scripture god can use evil as it comes to point us to him so that our hearts would turn and repent and and seek him and him alone so there's there's evil lurking behind the nations who rage and set themselves against Yahweh the creator God and his anointed king his son Jerusalem has always been a target and will be the final target for a battle um, to destroy God and his works I want to go back to Tom Wright as he talks about this Christmas story. He says at the heart of the Christmas story is a baby who, if only the Roman emperor knew it, will be the lord of the whole world. Within a generation, his followers will be persecuted by the empire as a danger to good order. Whatever else you say about Jesus from his birth onwards, people certainly found him a threat. He upset their power games and suffered the usual fate of people who do that. So why don't you think about the Herod Agrippa, who was the grandson of, of Herod the Great. But it's another Herod, but the same violence, the same evil lurking behind it. And so we're backing up in the story here, and we see, we see the violence that, that began when Jesus was born. Tom Wright goes on to say, in fact, the shadow of the cross falls over the story from this moment on, Jesus is born with a price on his head. Plots are hatched. Angels have to warn Joseph. They only just escape from Bethlehem in time. Herod the Great, who thought nothing of killing members of his own family, including his own beloved wife, when he suspected them of scheming against him. And and this is, uh, this is Tom this is talking about this too. He says, this is when Herod gave orders so that when he died, the leading citizens of Jericho would be killed so that people would be weeping at his funeral. Right? This, this Herod, back to the quote, would not bat an eyelid at the thought of killing lots of little babies in case one of them should be regarded as a royal pretender. Right? This is all out of Matthew chapter 2. As his power had increased, so had his paranoia, a not unfamiliar progression, as dictators around the world have shown from that day to this. You remember when, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, the wise men came and Herod connected with them and said, where is this king to be born? And he, he tried to find out the location so that he could slaughter all of the babies. That's dark. That's evil. And we, we also live in dark times where peace on earth seems fraught with anxiety. How's that going to happen? Our own Christmas story is clouded over. It's crowded by darkness. Two years of pandemic, poor government, uh, social upheaval, right? violence everywhere. Anything but peace on earth. But I want us to remember this as we approach this Christmas season, this, these festivals of light. 
John 1, 1 through 5 says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. We've got opposing forces here, light and dark. And the darkness cannot overcome the light, because all you have to do is just turn the light on. But you say, well, they did murder Jesus, finally, didn't they? Yes, they, they killed the author of life. But how's that going to work? Because then he arose bodily in glorious light to die no longer, so that those who are faithful to Jesus, believers faithful to Jesus, may never die. So, let me put this together. Jesus was born to die and rise so that we too might die to darkness and in that dark of night then be born again and rise to life in the light. So I just want us to think about this. What can we be taking away from this exploration of the powerful darkness but the glorious light? of a rebellious evil, but a conquering good. So I want us to ask this. Which kings are threatened by the Messiah today? When, when the announcement of a new king comes, who is threatened by that? Well, all of us. Because right? we all have this throne space in our own life, and we don't want to give it up. And, and evil says, yeah. Keep that throne. That's all yours. You push God away. You, you can become who you want to be, and we have to watch out for that. I mentioned the two ancient kings, the Herods, for their response. But I also mentioned at the beginning 330 million others who need to choose between light and darkness to allow our crowns to be placed at the foot of Jesus, to choose whether we are going to join him because allegiance to Jesus isn't the only option. Jesus is king, Lord of lords. What are you going to do about that? Well, allegiance is one option. But you know this, the rebellion has formed. We're not going to do it. We don't care what he says. The nations rage and plot against God's anointed. We're not going to, we're not going to follow this rule. We're not going to go after Jesus. We're going to try to, uh, um, to throw over his his rule and his reign. And the rebellion that's formed is encouraging you to join with it moment by moment. So Jesus is declared king. That's the great announcement, the gospel, the great proclamation that changes the world. And you have a choice to accept his kingship, to pledge allegiance as a faithful follower or stay in rebellion. Is there any room in the inn, right? So darkness cannot win the war. I want you to know that. The larger war, darkness cannot win. Satan will not ascend to the throne. Darkness cannot win the war, but evil wins the battle when they drag you down and get you to join in rebellion as well. See, we have the opportunity daily to join and rejoin the rebellion, to side with the kingdom of darkness, to be dragged back into bondage 
or repent and turn toward the light. And I want to I want to give you that motif. I want to give you that understanding so that you can see evil lurking behind everything. Because we're not fighting a war against humans. We're not fighting against humans. But make no mistake, we are in a, a fight. If you don't acknowledge the fight, you're just losing. Because everyone is a combatant, even the civilians in this kind of war. We're not forming lines with rifles and ranks. It's, it's coming at us from all angles. It's called asymmetrical warfare. The rebellion has all the world systems on its side to draw you into it in ways that you don't even recognize right now, that I don't even recognize, though I pray that the Spirit will reveal them to you. In many ways, we're, we're siding with rebellion and we don't even know it. The temptation to evil is always happening. You know the big seven sins, uh, in no particular order. Envy, greed, sloth, lust, pride, gluttony, and wrath. Right? They, they've been described as, as, uh, as the social media networks have been labeled. <laughs> you can see that... Uh, they've, they've all been assigned a spot there. Or maybe if you were to take your phone and, and set the apps up according to these different things, you'd find categories for each one of these things as well. As you, the king, sit on your throne with your royal scepter and declare your dominance over the world and order things and summon trucks to your house and you, you get entertainment and you get food and you get whatever you want... Other 330 million kings in America with these smartphones acting like they rule the world. But the temptation to evil is always happening. And each time we get snared by temptation and rebel, we also have the opportunity to repent, to turn. And what a gift that is. Because God uses the pain and even the temptation to draw us toward repentance. The gift of seeing the light when we're groping around in the darkness. So repent, um, turn around, change from loyalty to yourself to loyalty to Jesus. Let me just close with a letter uh, that John wrote to his faithful Jesus followers. He's telling them about their destiny of being the sons of God around the throne. The very thing that Adam and Eve were created to be and that the enemy ruined through temptation. His envy over human beings. Um, their, their destiny to become children of God is what caused the rebellion in the first place. So I just want you to ask the Spirit of God to reveal to you what he's asking you to repent of. Where has the sin just been too easy because there's supercharged power behind it? How can we turn and put, make sure Jesus is the one on the throne of our lives? Let me read this to you. 1 John 3, 1 through 11. You see what kind of love the Father has given to us? That we should be called children of God around the throne. And so we are. The reason why the world doesn't know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. 
right? This is the glorious future that, that it's hard to even understand how we are going to become the, the true sons of God. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. That's that rebellion. Sin is lawlessness. You know that Jesus appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in Jesus keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. I'll just insert here, if Jesus comes to destroy the works of the devil, what right do you and I have to re-attempt to connect back with the works of the devil? The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God, and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Jesus is offering you that light. When you receive the light, he gives you the power to take your stand against the enemy. You don't have to stay in rebellion. There is hope for light and life in Jesus. If you're in Christ, don't give any power back to the enemy. I mean, we're not just saying, slap you on the hand, don't sin, be good, be better. No, you've been free. The shackles have been removed. Don't go bind yourself back to the enemy of your soul, rejoining the rebellion. Live in freedom and in light and turn to Jesus. Satan cannot defeat God, right? The, the only way to get at Jesus, to get at the Creator, is to spoil his creation and to get you to join in his hatred of God. Well, I don't hate God. No, but, but his hatred of God is, is enacted by what? Hating other people. He hates God, can't get at him, and so he hates people. John summarizes this war, getting back to the greatest commandment. Love God, love your neighbor as yourself, right? Love God with your heart, love your neighbor as yourself. Two sides of the same coin. And I think he's saying this, when we love God, the way we do it is to love people. When we hate God, the way we do that is to hate people. So we cannot give in to divisiveness, slander, all these different things that come out of pride and envy, that desire to tear other people down. We have to be the children of light. So stand your ground. If you're a Christian, stand your ground. Love one another. And in so doing, your love of God will shine like stars in the dark of night as we wait 
for the dawn. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus.